it was all happening very quickly. And, um, and to be honest, it was, we rushed, um, and we got, we started without packing properly. And we got on the other side, we thought that there was like all this floating ice that was maybe 20 meters offshore. And we thought we'd get on the other side of it, go parallel all the way along the shore, 20 meters offshore with this ice floating around, then bash our way through it back to land. We're so naive. We're absolutely humbled by the ice that night. It just like, it was sort of angling further and further offshore until we were miles offshore and we were like we don't know how far this goes you know we could end up trying to go 50 miles around this so we turned around to go back but it had shifted so we couldn't even get back to land and uh and we couldn't see land because it was foggy so we didn't you know there was no like point of reference to know well if we just keep going for a bit we'll land so we were kayaking with a completely unknown end in this podcast, I'm going to be exploring what it takes to live a life full of adventure and freedom. I'll be interviewing adventurers, explorers, and business owners who have set their life up to have an abundance of choice. And I'm also going to give you the high performance tips and tricks I teach my adventurepreneur clients to have the kind of life they want and be the type of person they wish they were. So if you're not already, subscribe to the show and settle in for another episode of The Freedom Project. Live your life as an adventure. Not something to be endured, but rather embraced. A challenge designed to forge you into the very best version of yourself. That is what life is. In this conversation, my guest Mark Agnew shares his secrets to a grand adventure, including the three components to ensure that every single adventure you go on gives you exactly what you seek, what you can learn about failure and success from two aborted rows across the Atlantic, what becoming the first person to kayak the Northwest Passage taught Mark about challenge and how to find contentment in the effort and not just the outcome. Mark is an adventurer, journalist and speaker and in 2023 he became part of the group who were the first to cross the Northwest Passage by human power. A challenge that lasted 102 days where he was faced with polar bears and potentially catastrophic sea ice. He has a history of adventure and will teach you a ton about living life as an adventure. So please welcome Mark Agnew. So Mark, welcome to the show, dude. Pleasure to be speaking to you. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we get into everything that I want to chat about on the Northwest Passage and all that kind of stuff, Talk to you about living in Hong Kong and how that sets up with adventure. Uh, yeah, so I lived in Hong Kong for uh, basically all of my all of my twenties, um, and uh, I just wanted to live somewhere that wasn't the UK. Not because I just liked the UK, but I was young and wanted to live abroad. And I thought my ticket abroad would be my rugby. So I emailed various clubs around the world, and eventually a club in Hong Kong replied, gave me like a few hundred pounds a month for three months and like a, a sofa to sleep on while I looked for a job. And um, Hong Kong is mental. It's like at like 500 miles an hour. Like there's no such thing as like a couple of pints in a park run. It's either like a massive three-day bender or an ultra marathon. And there's absolutely nothing in between. And it's just everybody there is full of energy. They're all type A. And uh, initially, you know, I had a great time there. But I started to explore more and more of the countryside and realized that there is a lifetime of like things to do out there in the outdoors. You forty know, percent of the country is national parks, and uh, you think of it as just yeah. the skyline, but it's it's all just these beautiful mountains. The reason it's so tall is because it can't build out because it's such steep mountains, and they're as big as like Monroe's in some cases in Scotland, and you can get right to them 
from your door, you can walk and get onto a trail in 10 minutes, or you can, you know, take a ferry and be on like a whole deserted island. So I started getting more and more into hiking. Um, then I got this amazing job at the South China Morning Post as the outdoor and extreme sports journalist. So I started um, interviewing people and I found this huge community of ultra runners, like the, one of the biggest communities of ultra runners in the world. Um, every single weekend from about October to March, you can sign up to any one of dozens of trail races and ultra marathons. And are, that those, really, like, are those people like Hong Kongese or are they, um, are they kind of um, expats? expats? A whole combination, you know, like probably proportionately represent like... So it's not like groups. people are massing there for that. It's just they find it at the same time. Uh, well, yeah. Do you mean people aren't traveling to Hong Kong? As yeah, expats purely to, go, yeah. to be an ultramarathon kind of community. Well, yeah, people tend to like get, go there and then... Find, it's so like normal that uh, a lot of people get into it. And like, what are you doing this weekend? So many people hike and then they start yeah. to run and then they start to do ultramarathons. So there's like a lot of like... Um, fat to thin kind of like stories from people who are like, I'd never run a 5k. And um, it's just so normalized. And you, and now I'm not out of Hong Kong. I'm like, I can't believe I did like ultra marathons. I probably will never do one again. Like uh, it ruined my knees. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it's not even like it, there are, there is the community that takes it really, really seriously. And, and um, there's, you know, elite runners and people who do it regularly who aren't elite, like any sport, just like there is a, rugby community there but it's so common that it like transcends the community so there's a race for example 100 kilometers four or five thousand meters of total elevation um you do it in groups of four and that is like five thousand people running it and ever it's like a thing to do even if you're not an ultra runner you you know you could be in any group and oh yeah i did it with my work group and we took 30 hours and oh i did it with a group of friends and we took 16 hours and uh, it's like a one, you know, like, oh, I'm living in London. I'd love to do the London Marathon one day. It's like, oh, I'm living in Hong Kong. I'd love to do 100 kilometers over these steep mountains. So, um, you know, that, that like, um, really took my, like, interest from, like, being outdoorsy to thinking about really pushing and pushing and pushing. I presume you weren't Something a extreme. prop in rugby then? Uh, well, I, I was, like, a second row by the time okay. I finished and a pretty pretty rubbish one. So I'm I'm a terrible ultra runner. Yeah, like, but, yeah. <laughs> like rugby build, ultra running build. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't do that many. I just like I'm more of a hiker and then I got into rowing. Mm -hmm. So I was just, yeah, ultra running is just like one of these communities as rock climbing communities as um, coastal rowing was what I got into in a big way, which is makes more sense with my second row build. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, there's races like 44 kilometers around Hong Kong Island and that kind of stuff. Um, and that sort of coincided with me wanting to row the Atlantic. So I want. I started to learn to row so I could row the Atlantic, and then I just started enjoying rowing for itself rather than as a means to an end. Okay, so um, lots of people start rowing and they go, "Okay, I'm going to set a nice two k time, or I'm going to be part of a, a a chill team, or learn to scold by myself." Very few people go on a row across the Atlantic as the immediate objective. Well, my, mine was the other way around. I was like, I want to row the Atlantic. I should probably learn to row. Yeah. Rather than like learning to row. Oh, I'd love to do this for two months. You know, um, initially I thought I would row, learn to row, row the Atlantic and never row again. Uh, and to be honest, I probably will never row again now. Um, it's now, now that Shit, I'm we'll get into that, I reckon. Uh, um, um, yeah, so, um, and in defense of people who want to do 2Ks, if you do a really, really good 2K time, it is almost just as hard as running the Atlantic. Oh, it's, it's just in a different way, like full-on effort condensed for... 
um, six, seven or eight minutes is, mm-hmm. is just very, very different kind of maximal effort for like very low effort for yeah. 40 days or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. I don't think there's a worse test that I've done in my life than like including yeah. the commando test and the amount of pain you get from, um, from a 2k row time, that feeling of trying to roll around the floor whilst you're still strapped into a concept two is horrendous. Yeah. Yes. I was, I didn't do many of them. My like, uh, go to length was 10k where, mm. uh, where um but yeah two k's were not my thing that will do 10k will do so rugby like i didn't realize you played a, a, a like a high standard of rugby uh, well yeah i mean i i guess it was probably not as i probably wasn't as good as i thought i was yeah the uh the club that paid me and gave me a bed where they, they were a bit annoyed when i came out there and they were like uh <laughs> you're not nearly as good as you said you were i was like i don't think i said i was good so i spent you know spent most of my time in Hong Kong going in and out of the first team and second team and then ended up like very much in the second team. Um, but as you know, I took it very seriously at school. At school, I did some representative stuff and uh, uh, went on to uni and took it seriously. Um, but uh, at, um, I look back, we'll get on to, I guess, what what I know now about what I enjoy. Like I had to really examine what I enjoy about sport to get the most that I could get out of the Northwest Passage. And I realized that it's like the camaraderie that is most important to me. The experiences are amazing and they're made even better by sharing them. And I wish I knew that when I was playing rugby because I thought I was competitive, like winning, driven to compete. And, um, and as a result, after school and then after uni, I just got more and more frustrated when I wasn't picked in the first team. And it would annoy me every time. And uh, I sort of felt a bit embarrassed to be in, in, in the second team. And I considered being made captain or something like a poison chalice because they never promote the captain up to the first team. Um, and now that I look back and I realized that actually it didn't matter to me about being the best. Uh, it mattered to me about doing it with people I care about. So at uni, a lot of my friends were in the second team. And if I realized that about myself then, I would have had a much better time because I wouldn't have just been frustrated when I wasn't in the first team and I would have just enjoyed what an incredible team we had. And um, it, was, it was ridiculous. We won the cup, we won the league, and I was just annoyed that I wasn't in the first. And then um, same thing happened at, um, in Hong Kong a bit. So, um, and I think if I'd known that now, I probably would have changed clubs earlier where a lot of my friends were at a different club and just like enjoyed playing in the second team rather than like, I, you know, it's ridiculous that I cared so much about. It's not even like I wasn't being picked to play for Scotland. It's like, being picked up playing the first team in Hong Kong, I don't know why it mattered to me so much, and I couldn't see that what what I really wanted was to play with my friends. It's funny how we we almost need those experiences though, because you can't realize that unless you have all that kind of negative emotion build up, like that emotion yeah. salient in some ways, like saying, "Look here, look here, there's something for you to find out here." But yeah, if you yeah. don't have the kind of negativity, then you don't necessarily find it. Yeah, well, it was like um, it's like a. After the Atlantic, I spoke to some like sports psychologists and they gave me the language to like understand that. And I was like, oh, I, it suddenly makes sense. Like, you know, what they were telling me, I already knew, but I'd never like been able to articulate and it just completely changed how I framed sport. But yeah, that was after I stopped playing rugby. So uh, too late for that, but uh, in time for the Northwest Passage. Yeah. So you mentioned there or hinted at the idea of Atlantic crossings. When did that? appear in your on the horizon as a a potential idea so just as i was leaving university in 2013 a friend of my mine stuart canard he sent me a link with a video to people rowing atlantic and was like let's do this 
And uh, I was like, well, absolutely, let's do it. And I was incredibly naive and like, you know, we were like, oh, we'll graduate in June, we'll take a month to party, then we'll, you know, start training and fundraising and we'll do it in December, five months down the line. But uh, we were so naive to the extent of the planning and the fundraising that it really takes to get one of those off the ground. Um, and it wasn't until 2016, when I was already in Hong Kong and he was still living in the UK, that we found this guy who was like, it was like a pay per place. So he was saying, I'll row the Atlantic, buy a spot on my boat, which makes it cheaper, much, much logistically easier because we don't have to like spend all that time planning. We can just turn up and row. Um, and uh, we thought that was absolutely perfect. And he'd also set this record or that record. So he said, so it made sense for us to join. And uh, um, and it just went disastrously wrong. <laughs> it just went so wrong. Um, he was, uh, the newspapers have articles going back to the 90s calling him Captain Calamity. But uh, by the time I found out about that, I was already like, well, financially, but also like emotionally very, very committed. Um, and when you're emotionally committed, you find ways of rationalizing whatever you want to rationalize. So um, we, uh, if we asked a question we'd believe his answer um even if the truth was staring us in the face and we finally started and we got uh, about 42 hours in before we were helicoptered off um what happened and well so um the first sort of night day and night and then subsequent day were going fine and we were going very fast um and uh the reason we thought we were going to break the world record was because we were in a like a multi-hull boat like shaped like a catamaran mm -hmm. which meant we could surf down the waves better but that was also used in a way as an, like an excuse, I suppose, for a lot of like um, um, shortcomings. You know, um, why don't we have waterproof hatches? Well, um, we're multi-hull, so we'll surf down the waves. The waves won't break over us. We don't need waterproof hatches. Why don't we have proper safety lines? Well, we're multi-hull. We're more stable. We don't need safety lines like they do in the mono-hull. So we just tied like ropes around our waist. Um, you know, why do we only have like a thousand calories per person per day? Well, we're a multi-hull. We'll be more efficient. We won't like burn as many calories. That one in particular, we had a big fight about because I was like, yeah, I'm on the multi-hull. Yeah. yeah, I was like, I, you know, the boat might move quicker, but I wouldn't. So uh, he let me bring like, uh, uh, well, I just went to the spa and brought whatever I could that was like high in calories that wouldn't perish. You know, olive oil, nuts, salami. Um, it was like going to row across the Atlantic on this middle-class anti-pasta. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, and then in particular, the, the, the hatches were, that weren't waterproof were coming to fruition. The guys in the back cabin were sleeping in like two or three inches of water. And one of the guys, you know, you're going rowing for two hours and you're sleeping in water for two hours, just getting, your body's just, just spiraling. So one of the guys was in real trouble. Um, and we owe him because the rest of us might have just like kept our eyes down and hoped for the best because we still were emotionally invested. So he's like sort of forced our hand, um, um, and then took the fall afterwards because he got the blame from the captain. Oh, we would have done it if it wasn't for his. Was it a team of four? It was a team of ten. Ten. It was this big, like multi hull. Um, and uh, but that night was amazing. You know, these huge swells rolling up behind us, and when you're in an ocean rainbow, you're staring up at them. And uh, when you're between them, it's this pitch black, this kind of darkness that I hadn't experienced before where it doesn't just feel like a lack of light. It feels like the surface of the water is like sucking the light out of the air. And then in the next minute or on the top of the wave and the moon was so bright, it was our only source of light. It was our only source of light partly because 
the captain had brought like these garden solar panel lights to um and one by one they got snapped off in the first about 24 hours um but it was just this incredible seascape and even though i could see what was happening around me i was like exhilarated but not in in you know exhilarated like just wow this is where i want to be you know i'm um, moving under my own power completely immersed in this amazing seascape but then yeah we got picked up and we're in a Captain Calamity headlines ourselves by the end of the weekend. Ideal. Well, so, so how did that unfold? The the guy who was going down, what was, what was his situation? He was just getting hypothermia or? Um, yeah, well, I don't really know actually now because the boat was so big. And somebody told me that he was like urinating blood and stuff like that. But I've spoken to him afterwards and I I can't work out where he what he was suffering and to what extent he could just see the writing on the wall and was like, we need to get off this or we're all going to die. Um, so he's, to what extent he sort of exa- exaggerated in a condition to force the captain's hand, which I'm glad of. And, and he's not like in any way pathetic. He went on to row the Atlantic. I think he's one of the oldest people to have done it. So he's like got it in him. And uh, uh, with his experience now and me being a bit more experienced, it's like the, the more experience we get, the more danger we realize we were in. So, you know, I own a great deal. Yeah, man, that the naivety that you have going into things like this, the first few yeah. times, I, I don't even think it matters if it's specific to that type of event. It's just when you start mm. doing things like this, whether it's days out in the mountains or an ultra marathon or rowing across the Atlantic, it's when you start doing things like this, you're so naive to the potential mm. dangers and also like the the people and the quality of people who are potentially leaders. Yeah, well, God, I've fallen for that a few times. But like um, the, um, do you know the Dunning-Kruger effect? Yes, yeah. Yes, I feel like I've had the Dunning, particularly kayaking. Is a, yeah, for people who are listening and don't know, the Dunning-Kruger effect is you're really likely to overestimate your ability if you are very inexperienced. But the more you get to know about a subject, the more you realize you don't know. It requires a certain level of like knowledge about a subject to be able to understand how much else there is for you to learn. And particularly with kayaking the Northwest Passage, which again, I dived into like very late without much kayaking experience. And the more experience I got, the more insane I realized how it was that I was there with this little kayak experience. <laughs> I almost got like more nervous towards the end when I was much more experienced mm. um, because I began to realize how like inexperienced I was. But it, but in the rowing of the Atlantic, I think it was inexperienced, but it was also like how easy it is to put blinkers on when you are so determined you know that like it is a skill um it's it my it, my dad calls it the courageous decision to have the self-awareness to like pull the plug you know like what at what point oh, this is risky you've got to push yourself you've got to get um to the edge but at what point do you say like this is crossing a line from the objective risk to the reckless risk and how do you have the self-awareness to say am i chickening out or am I making a sensible decision? If you are 200 meters from the summit of Everest and you like, th- this is the example my dad uses because he was close to the summit of Everest. <laughs> like uh, if you're 200 meters from the summit of Everest, the bravest thing you can do is like turn around because you know it's unsafe. But how do you, that's like an impossible decision. And I just couldn't make that decision then because I was so emotionally invested in this throwing the Atlantic that I was rationalizing away so much well, those Captain Calamity headlines, you know what newspapers are like. Well, I'm a journalist. You know, I, I have a higher opinion of other journalists. And yet I managed to dismiss somehow like 
20 years of articles. Well, we don't need waterproof hatches. I mean, I've sailed my whole life. You know, I know the waves come over whether you're in a multi-hull or not. Well, we're in a multi-hull, so, you know, it won't come over. A thousand calories, like, you know, you don't need to be a scientist. But I managed to, like, convince myself of um, so many things because I wanted them to be true. How old were you then? Uh, 2016, so um, what, mid-20s, 24? Yeah. Wait, Okay, so the same age. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's when you really want to believe something. When you really want to, to yeah. like, when you've got this dream goal, there's, I think there's really strong parallels here to entrepreneurship as well. It's like, you've got this mm-hmm. business idea, you're driving and driving and driving, you're pushing, like you, you know, the sacrifice involved, you know, you have to suffer, but at some point the writing is on the wall. And because you become so blinkered by what you want to see, you don't pay attention to it. And yeah. it's like, it's, but when you do, it's been there for years and it's, it's clear to see. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's in any walk of life that um, if you have something that you want to be true, then yeah. you relationship find a way for it to be true. Yeah. Yeah. Must yeah be exactly. Dead. Yeah. Okay. So you got, you got, um, I was going to say pulled off, <laughs> choose your words better, Tom. Um, yeah. you, you, uh, you got extracted from, from the boat. Like what was, what was that moment like? Um, it was, well, it was quite actually like physical, it was sort of like physical comedy. Um, uh, well, first of all, the captain who'd been helicoptered off before and said, Oh, I know what I'm doing here. He said, you can pack a bag. So, I mean, I put like my wallet and my phone in and a camera and, and he said, no, no, it's, it's a helicopter, Mark. It's not going to have a problem lifting your stuff. So we packed a bit more. No, no, it's a helicopter. Don't worry about it. So I packed most of my clothes. And then when they came down, they were Spanish. So there was a language barrier and they said like, leave your bags. And we thought they were saying like, um, you know, we'll pick, we'll get you up then we'll get your bags up. Um, I went up with this big wide brim cricket hat, which then like blew down over my face under the, the downdraft of the helicopter. The guys watching from below looked like said I looked like a human sh- shuttlecock, and I was just swinging backwards and forwards, completely blind. And I smacked my I smacked on like the bottom of the helicopter, and then I was pulled in. And then we started to fly away, and we all said, "What about our what about our bags?" And they were like, "What do you mean? What about your bags? <laughs> we're not we're not easy jet here. We're picking you up." Um, so we lost all of our passports. Um, which meant we had to then like sit in Lagomera for not Lagomera, um, uh, somewhere else in the Canary, but I think it, I think Canary, I can't even remember the name of the island, but uh, waiting for like emergency passports. Um, and thankfully, we were just sitting on the bus like into town, all completely lost with no money, only the clothes on our back, talking to among ourselves. And somebody else in the bus said, Sorry, I keep overhearing you. What, what, what happened? We explained, and he said, Wow, I can't overhear this and not help. So he let us stay in his apartment. Um, which was very, very nice of him. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it was just a bit of a mess. <laughs> I had like, uh, when I left the office, like a few days earlier, I got this like standing ovation, like Explorer goes off to set a world record to row across the Atlantic. That must be nice for the ego as well at that point. Well, no, that I was like, that was one of my friends taking the, the mick out of me. Like, as I stood up to leave, they were like, good luck. And then, you know, starts a slow clap. <laughs> uh, I was like, stop it, stop it, Chris. And like, people looking over, what are they clapping? Oh, God, now I've got to lead into this now, waving like a politician as I go out and everybody's clapping. It was so embarrassing. And then I was back by like the end of the weekend. And people were like, <laughs> that's quick. Yeah, yeah, bloody hell, you really did set a lot of record. Yeah, or they thought, I I thought you were going to run the Atlantic. Yeah, well. So did I. Yeah, so did I. (laughs) Um, So, uh, um, yeah, and it it was all like easy to take and quite funny. 
And like, um, you know, obviously I was like telling the story and trying to justify it and um, uh, validate myself as not like a somebody chickened out. Um, but it was like so binary that we would uh, have to get off that boat that there was no like angst about it. But uh, then I tried a Red Atlantic again two years later and uh, didn't get much farther. And that uh, that time there was a lot of angst and I really, really suffered from the fallout of that one. Yeah. Tough. Okay. So let's come back to that in a second. Surely, you, actually, what was what was the approach you took to rowing when you when you came up when you got extracted that first time, and you were back on dry land? Was it a I will never do that again, or was it I can't wait to get out with a better crew, or something? I, I was. Yeah. I mean, I with my friend Stu, who I'd you know initially wanted to do it with. You know, we were like in the helicopter and like we're doing this again, but we're not doing it with like, we're going to organize it ourselves, you know? Um, like I was so, um, like the simplicity of it, you know, I, d- I didn't really have a way of articulating why I wanted to do it. And now th- this reason has changed, but, um, you know, initially it was like, push yourself, uh, you know, human endurance, find the edge, world records. But then like when, as soon as we started, I realized it was a simplicity. Like, it's just so, simple you're moving from a to b you wake up you move from a to b you eat so you can fuel yourself to move from a to b um it sort of feels primal there's no like trying to prioritize things or like i'll get to this email later and um they you know there's it's just like completely and utterly like back to basics the maslow hierarchy of needs kind of thing and uh and i was just so enamored by that and so enamored by how amazing that night was, um, even if it was going absolutely tits up. It was just incredible to be in the midst of that environment. Uh, that was just so incredible. So, yeah, I wanted to go back. Isn't it amazing how we desire that simplicity and the fact mm-hmm. that we have everything around us, like, got the heating on now, it's chilly outside, it's warm in here. It's, like, it's so um, easy, yet we crave something difficult and very simplistic it's like the same thing as hunting the same thing as ski touring the same thing as like as rowing or kayaking it's like the simplicity of it the mm-hmm. back to basics the 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 challenge but also like i've got to put food in my face and travel and that's basically yeah. your requirements there's something so compelling about it yeah um I, it's probably to do with our like advancing western civilization and how comfortable we're all getting that we desire um, something else and you know you see it in the marketing of these things they, they don't say um, come and sign up to my race and you'll see incredible views they're all like the world's tough as this the world's tough as that the world's tough as this and somehow telling people how tough it is is all a, is a marketing campaign to get them to say well I want to do the world's toughest row I want to do the world's toughest ultramarathon I mean there's so many world toughest things now it's you know completely arbitrary and relative but um it's just interesting and also i guess there is a disproportionate amount of men doing it to women so maybe that marketing is maybe maybe a different marketing would like attract different like socioeconomic groups um and different genders and that kind of thing you know i i I doubt that kenyans who are running marathons because they want to get the prize money to better their lives i doubt the appealing thing for them is the toughness. Oh, great. I got to go do something force. tough. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for them, it is like um, a means to an end. 
which um, is something uh, it, there's a great book called running with Kenyans, which sort of like looks at like the different motivations of uh, one as- aspect of the book is like, you know, we're all like, Oh, I want to push myself. And people who grew up in incredibly tough backgrounds aren't like, Oh, I seek do marathons because I want to push myself. They are ironically doing it because they can get money and then be more comfortable. Mm. So it was like multi-dimensional, but for us in Britain, white men, comfortable backgrounds, well, my uh, comfortable background, I, I don't know. Um, I can't speak for you, but uh, there's something that's like missing to, from this sanitary life that, uh, that clearly is being met by this explosion of world's toughest, this, that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that craving for hardship. It's so bizarre that we would crave something like that. Mm. Do you think about that as an evolutionary strategy? What is it that's hardwired in there? Is it just that we feel anxious if we don't do difficult things and like that signals to us that we need to like generate food or move forwards with our life in some kind of very physical way? Like, what could that be? Yeah, that is, I mean, I'm sure somebody out there has answered it about my pay grade, but this is like in- very interesting books. Running with Kenyans is what addresses it. Board to Run is another one that mm-hmm. looks at our sort of like biological wired to be long distance runners. And um, for me, you know, I think there's like a community aspect to it. Um, I know some people love to do solo adventures, but I never would. Um, I would only ever do it with people. And um, there's something about like friendship is one thing, but camaraderie is like another step where you have that shared suffering, shared effort, common goal, um, unique things you've seen together that is uh, important to me. Yeah, it's interesting because when you speak to guys and girls that have been military about what they miss it's the camaraderie and yes there's yeah. the exciting cool shit of blowing stuff up and running around with guns and all that kind of stuff and that, that's part of it but it's a very small part but what you miss is the blokes that you're with and the yeah. camaraderie which is way deeper than a casual friendship because you're you're chat like i've always said the way to bond people together is to do different difficult things together and inebriate yourselves together you do those two yes. things and it really binds people exactly yeah Big fan of both of them. (laughs) (laughs) So what was motivating you on the, to do the second attempt? I know you're like, I really want to do this, but was it like, was there a difference? Uh, That's a good question. Well, I think I, I think there probably was a difference and it was going down a bad path because, you know, when I, when Stu sent me that video in 2013, I, I didn't know that there were world records in this space. Like I didn't know that, People tried to set world records. If I thought about it, I probably would have guessed that there are. But it's certainly not something that I thought about. And it's, not, it's definitely not something, I mean, I don't know why I would have assumed that I could do it. Because in world record time, I wasn't a rower. I'm not a particularly fit person, like, innately. Um, and uh, then when we signed up to row with uh, the Captain Calamity guy, it was for a world record. Um, and I think I began to believe my own sponsorship pitch. So by the second time, I'm like, we're going to win the race. I want to set the record, blah, 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 all these kind of things. I was so like focused on that. Um, and I, you know, telling myself, well, I want to enjoy the journey and I'd rather finish and have a good time than finishing the record thing. But like so much of it was becoming more and more about the performance, um, and getting it done. So I had my group of friends and for one reason or another, we never like mashed a sort ourselves out and, and prepare so at the last minute i switched and uh, called the uh, i was this time i entered the talisker whiskey atlantic challenge race mm-hmm. and they said there was somebody who was going in a, 
pair and her partner had dropped out at the same time my team sort of disintegrated. So I called them and we ended up in a like a boat together. Um, so just two of mix, these? Yeah, wanting to set the mixed pair world record. Um, and uh, yeah, so I guess my like approach became more and more about um, like the performance aspect of it. And how long between no or between the change of team and then the departure date? Um, I probably changed teams like May or June, and then departed in December. Okay, but I was I was in Hong Kong, so I only came across back to the UK for two weeks, and we did and we did like five or six days together, and twenty four hours on the boat together, and then like a weekend a weekend hanging out so, so it's not, it wasn't very that long. must be a, quite an intense kind of um adventure sport date like are you a good person yeah. to spend like, yeah, yeah. tinder for ocean time. tinder for ocean rose yeah. yeah and like and we and we did get along and she's a very nice very nice woman and um it's unfortunate we didn't we didn't cross so and we could have been friends for life but i haven't spoken to her um, since <laughs> okay so yeah. right we, we got to ex- explore not anything you don't want to go into but well um, you know it's just that we haven't spoken because i moved back to hong kong and, okay but we only had this like brief time you know there was yeah. um, there was there's no fallout i wish her all the best but yeah we um we got about three days in she was really struggling with life at sea mm-hmm. to the extent that um um she had a panic attack and it continued on through um the night by the morning she made the courageous decision we were talking earlier about how difficult it is to have that self-awareness you know and she could have said well thank god i'm through that let's mm-hmm. we're on but she said look if i go on i'm putting myself and you in danger so we called for the a race boat to come and get her it's 36 hours it took to get to us and i'm just sitting there stewing in my own mind should i get off or should i go on solo and uh, initially i was like i'm going on solo it's going to be amazing but we were having problems with the battery. It wasn't charging properly, um, which meant at night we were turning off quite a lot, including a thing called AIS, which makes us visible on ship's radars. So if there's two of us, at least one of us can sit out on deck and look for a ship. In fact, while we were waiting for um, the uh, boat to come pick us up, we were taking hour-long shifts just to sit on deck and look at the horizon because we couldn't find the AIS. But uh, if I was by myself and asleep in the dark without the AIS, um, the ship could run me over and I'd never know that it was there before I was dead. Mm-hmm. And that is obviously a reason to get off. Or was I massively exaggerating the different the difficulty of the AS would cause, the risk that it, I was taking, and I was sort of grasping at a face-saving excuse to get off. Backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, I just was like completely overwhelmed by the decision. And by the time the boat came and picked her up, I got off as well. And, uh, and then that decision just like ate at me. Did I chicken out or didn't I? Um, and uh, I still don't really know what the answer is. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I think that I, I now think that maybe I probably would have been fine if I'd gone on. I think that it could have been as simple as something like we were still too far north. And if we, in a few days and we got a bit further south, the solar panels could have worked a little bit better. Um, but, or, but even with that in mind, is that crossing from that objective for that reckless risk? Um, I, don't, I don't know what the right decision was. Like, you know, I probably would have been fine. Is that good enough? I don't know. So it, uh, that ate at me and I felt humiliated, um, and, which is ridiculous because most people weren't even thinking about it. You know, I like, you know, in your mind, you think you're the most important person that ever. We go, I remember when Mark did the Atlantic twice. Um, 
and uh, and I had this idea of myself and um, this record setter, and I couldn't even get past the first week. So yeah, I felt uh, it, it started to just affect my confidence and self worth and like identity well beyond the idea of rowing the Atlantic. I just felt like really flat um, for a long time, over a year. Um, just pathetic, pathetic, I used to tell myself. And every time somebody rode the Atlantic, I felt like more embarrassed. Like, look how easy it is. Hmm. Pathetic. Or well, every time somebody would say, oh, you rode the Atlantic. Yeah, my old housemate used to do it. I'd be like, oh. Um, yeah, so it, um, yeah, that, that felt terrible. <laughs> yeah, when you've used it like an external achievement or a hope of an external achievement to identify yourself and create that identity of this is who I am this type of person I am and that gets taken away from you you're left with quite an absence mm. of yeah like, of, of like what's actually there who am I and it's amazing that those big questions come from something well it's, it's a big objective but it's like those big questions need to be answered well, you've just summed up very neatly something that I thought we'd get to later. But they, when, when I was trying to prepare for the Northwest Passage, I was like, I need to avoid this happening again. And what I thought the answer would be was more resilience. So I started interviewing some psychologists for a book, which I'm now writing about like how to build resilience for uh, my Northwest Passage adventure. But it completely changed because I had one conversation with... Um, a psychologist who does a podcast called Meaningful Sports. And she pointed me to some work by Katrina Douglas and David Careless, the two psychologists who have this work, about well, there's only three reasons why people take part in sport, according to them. Three narratives that you tell you, they call them narratives, stories you tell yourself for why you take part in sport. Performance, discovery, and relationships. The performance is the outcome, the win or loss. Discovery is having new experiences. Relationships is sharing it with people. And it's not supposed to be self-help. It's just a way of understanding like the way of the world. But that was the language that immediately spoke to me. I thought, yeah, when I wanted to row the Atlantic initially, it was for discovery. I didn't want to row on a rowing machine for 3,000 miles. I wanted to be in the middle of the ocean. I wanted to see whales and stars and swells and relationships. I would never do it alone because I wanted to do it with Stu, my old friend from school. I wanted to share that experience, get to the other side and be like, we did something special together. And somewhere along the line, it became all about performance. And the problem with the performance narrative is it's utterly binary. You win or you lose. And there's no way of judging success if you lose. But relationships and discovery, if I get to the other side, I haven't done the world record, but I've had an amazing experience being immersed in nature. I've built relationships with the people that I've shared that effort with. I'm free to judge success on my own terms. And even those failed adventures, when I was in those swells and the moon was casting a shadow behind us and I was there with Stu, is that not what I was looking for? <laughs> sure, okay, I would have liked, like, liked to have gone on more than two days. But like, if that's what I now judge as my success, I got at least an element of it. You know, and so having intrinsic values is the ultimate resilience because it frees you to judge success on your own terms. And it allows you to sort of enjoy the journey and not the destination because you think, well, I'm here for relationships and I'm with the people I care about. And I'm here for being immersed in nature, which is happening now, rather than I'm here for something that's 2,000 miles away. 
Yeah. Yeah, that, you know, when you hear something, you go, that clarifies 25 yeah. things I've been thinking about in my head. Like, that is yeah. exactly it. And it, how do you build a team? Well, if you're, if one of you is going for performance and one of you is going for discovery and the other one is going for relationships, then you're all conflicting and you're all trying to achieve different things despite the mm-hmm. um, external objective being summit that mountain. It, they're yeah. all conflicting and all different experiences. And then it also answers um, contingency options. And it also answers like, how do we do this? What's our strategy for for attaining this? It's it's all a completely different experience. Yeah. Um, although having said that, in the Norfolk Passage, I would say that I was more focused, more, more, a bit more articulate, like specific about my like need for camaraderie. And uh, that and other people were maybe more goal focused. But it didn't matter to me because I was like, well, if I'm here for camaraderie and he wants to be a goal, uh, then I can push. But because they, they leave for me, you know, people, some people ask when I give talks and stuff at schools, like which of those three is the most important to you? Because ultimately I still went on to do something that was still mm-hmm. binary in the sense that we were trying to do the Northwest Passage. And they, they, they're like circular. Mm-hmm. When does a friendship become camaraderie? Well, I could go kayaking up and down the Firth of Forth outside Edinburgh. But the shared goal, the performance, turns that friendship into camaraderie because we have to have a shared goal to push for that shared effort. Yeah. Yeah. And the um, experience being immersed in nature is great. But then sharing that with people makes it even greater. And then sharing that with people who you have camaraderie with, which you get through pushing for a goal. Mm -hmm. So... um, I guess like the goal is still important, but as a facilitator for the other two, rather than an, it's like a means to an end rather than an end in itself. But it has to be something that you're still 100% genuinely pushing yourself for. Because if you're not, if you're like, well, you know, who cares if we don't do it? I'm just here for camaraderie. Well, the camaraderie won't happen because you need to be pushing and having that shared effort. So it's still like important. And uh, one question I sometimes get is like, well, you train less hard and feel less motivated because if you're not wanting to go, well, no, I feel more motivated because previously I really wanted to set a world record. Now I really don't want to let down my teammates, yeah. which is going to be a more like um, uh, a be- like a more motivator, you know, looking at my teammates and saying, I'm pushing myself hard for them because they're pushing themselves hard for me. But we're only going to push ourselves if we have that performance like metric. And this is like going beyond what this psychologist said because she's just like, this is just a framework to understand why people enjoy sport. I don't think she's maybe thought about how they interact or how they motivate people um, beyond that. And But for me, I was like, wow, I get it. Like, you know, I'd forgotten about the other two and just focus on performance, but I still can't let go of performance. I went on an aimless adventure last year where I just kayaked down the West Coast and I of Scotland and I climbed Monroe's as I passed them. And I had two weeks time and I was just picking as I went, like the weather is such and such today. And it was very fun. And I was immersed in nature and I did it with friends. But it wasn't that rewarding because there wasn't the performance thing. Even And like, even if it's not a world record, even if it's just let's try and get a round sky. So there's an A and B finish and then we do it together or whatever, rather than just like, let's see how far we get. So yeah, what I'm saying, I guess, in a very roundabout way is uh, intrinsic goals make things much, much more uh, powerful and gives me a great deal of contentment when we achieve them. But I still need the performance to facilitate the other two. As you're talking, I almost viewed it like three legs of a stool. They all have to be um, in proportion to each other in some way. 
but yeah. your individual psychology mindset um biology probably um genetics everything that makes you you determines how like how much stress each one needs to take or the the length of each leg of the stool because it's almost like it's going to yeah. be slightly off kilter so it's like how do i make it personal to me and at the same time how do i ensure that i'm hitting these pieces and not ignoring one of them yeah 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 that makes so much sense because if i think about myself as going to the marines it was like okay that was discovery for me and camaraderie was in there and performance was in there but like the main thing was discovery am i doing something new um lots of other people were in there for performance and just they want to be the most elite soldier they can be and like and then if i think about so many other objectives that i've, I've gone for it's like okay the like it's the discovery thing that really speaks to me but it has to have the other two components otherwise it's mm. absent something yeah exactly okay if you're an adventurepreneur and you want more freedom to do more cool shit, then I want to help you do that. Every month, I take on a maximum of three new clients into my high-performance adventurepreneur program. This is a completely bespoke, personal, and deep-dive program giving you complete freedom, teaching you high-performance mastery. It's application and invite only, and I accept only those who are the best fit for the program. To apply for your space, head to my Instagram, Tom Foxley, F-O-X-L-E-Y, and send me a message with the word interested. So, we should probably explain what the Northwest Passage is. Yeah, so um, the Northwest Passage is the Arctic route that links the Atlantic to the Pacific. Um, for hundreds of years, Britain in particular was searching for it because they wanted to get to Asia to trade, but they couldn't go around South America because it was Spanish and they couldn't go around um, Africa because it was Dutch so they thought they'd go over North America um, and in particular in the 19th century it became like uh, the thing to find and that that's where all the famous stories of Franklin come from where uh, which are now like BBC dramas called The Terror and best-selling books by Michael Palin called The Erebus um, and then uh, in the last decade or so or since 2007 the ice has been disappearing enough that uh, it's open long enough that somebody can maybe get all the way through without a motor or a sail, so just under human power. And that has been um, like the next first in a lot of, um, in the adventure communities for, um, well, in the paddling community at least. So there's been rowers trying it and kayakers. And even this year, there were two other rowing teams attempting it. So we were in a, a race of some sort, um, um, but only we finished. So we became the first to kayak the Northwest Passage and the first to do it under human power in a single season. Somebody did it over three years, um, 10 years ago. Um, and, uh, and it was, it was epic. Uh, it was unbelievable. Like it was just crazy. It was a hundred, it took me 103 days starting on July the 1st, um, to October the 11th. And by the time October came around, it, uh, it was so savage. Uh, the, the conditions just turned on a, on a, they just went 180 degrees overnight. You know, we went to sleep cold and we woke up freezing like winter had arrived. So it just never, never left. Um, the other teams had stopped, uh, particularly one because it's, because it was too late in the year and the weather was getting too bad and we just sort of stuck it out. Um, and uh, which I think we could do because we were in a kayak instead of a rowing boat, which, um, you know, the Inuit invented the kayaks for a reason, if it was the best oh. boat to be up there and they would have invented a rowing boat. Um, 
Oh, it was amazing. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm like, ask me a more specific question because oh, I don't know where to start. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, there's so much. Yeah, yeah we're <laughs> absolutely going to do that. You started that journey with the idea of like, okay, I, I want to balance this more specifically for me in the idea of this is going to be more camaraderie based, more relationship based. Why not do something else that was different from that? So, um, what, why the Northwest Passage? Yeah, why, why North? That's a way better way of phrasing the question. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, the, I guess, well, things changed over time. Um, f- I guess initially, I actually was first drawn to this idea before I wrote The Atlantic in 2016 when uh, I was getting into ocean rowing. I started Googling around and I found somebody who was talking about rowing the Northwest Passage. And at the time, uh, I was what appealed to me was it seemed like a sort of legitimate last first, yeah. not, not last first, but like a legitimate next first. There's a lot of firsts out there which are very, very impressive and super cool and amazing adventures. Yeah, but, but there's a lot of they're possibly. Like, I'm but, the first person to climb Everest whilst wearing clown shoes. Yeah, some of it is gimmicky, but but even the ones that aren't gimmicky, um, that are like legitimate difficult adventures, I sometimes feel like. They're only first because you're the first person to think of it. Yeah, yeah. The first person to try it. And the thing about this was people have been trying it. You know, it's not like uh, that. It's not like I just thought of this and I was the first person to try it and the first person to finish it. So it, it felt like something that 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 aspect of it being a first made it um, like appealed to me from the competitive point of view, but also like the history point of view because. I love all those polar history books. Um, Shackleton, mm-hmm. Scott, Amiston, they, they've inspired me and I love them. And, uh, you know, oh, I wish I was born back then and I could do a first. And then I found one. I could be like part of this story. I could be the end of the, the, the last chapter of the Northwest Passage. Um, and that chilled out a lot because, um, uh, firstly, I moved away from the performance part. Mm-hmm. Maybe because I grew up a little bit and I look back on that and I cringe. And and thirdly, you know, the, trying to listen to some of the stuff that was said in Black Lives Matter, I was sort of thinking, I have a platform, I'm a journalist, I will get more of a platform through the achieving this. But I, uh, what sort of message am I putting out there? Uh, like going and doing a last great first, quote unquote, in Antarctica is great, but doing it in a place that has like indigenous population who have a complicated um, relationship with their other firsts, you know, making myself an extension of that legacy. Uh, you know, uh, they probably don't care, but, and it's, it, it's not like I suddenly became woke and I'm not inspired by like the stories anymore. I just thought of more a nuanced like approach to that aspect of like the inspiration that I had was, um, I just chilled out basically a little bit on like being like, oh, I'm going to be like Amiston. You know, I'm obviously nothing like Amiston. <laughs> um, but then moving more towards like the, I guess then the momentum was building and I was, became interested in the region and the history from both aspects, from like the wildlife, how cool it was. Um, so, so, you know, those intrinsic motivations came in more and more and it was still like a cool first and a difficult first. So that's going to build into camaraderie as we spoke about before. Mm-hmm. So why the Northwest Passage? I guess initially what drew me towards it was the history of it. And by the time I got there, um, 
it was the other intrinsic motivators mixed in with the history of it. Okay. Okay. So I'm completely poorly educated in the subject. Talk to me about the history in terms of the indigenous population. Well, I don't, you know, it wasn't like um, anything specific, but, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it was like the Victorian era. We're going to places and sort of claiming them and naming them. Um, King William Island and Victoria Island and Banks Island and there's people who already lived there and modernity came and in many ways I'm sure people will appreciate it because modernity, the access to global trade cut down um, uh, famine, for example, in the region, but it also brought disease and uh, there's still going out there, you can see the legacy of it in Pond Inlet where we started, there's an alcohol-free zone because there's um, local population struggle with um, generational trauma and a quick access to alcohol that hadn't come from their culture before. You know, I, I'm not like educated enough on it to speak in, in an authority, but there is like, it's not as simple as either we went there and destroyed their culture or um, they benefited entirely from us. Like for, it's for them to say, but I thought it wasn't for me to say, this is the last great first. I'm an extension of Amiston and Franklin and Frobisher and Captain Cook. I just thought that I should probably chill out, Matt, because it's embarrassing <laughs> and uh, possibly problematic. <laughs> yeah, could be cool. I mean, I wrote an article in the newspaper in Hong Kong called The Last Great First, and I, I read back on that and I like want to melt. Yeah, but surely, like, I, I appreciate that. And I've done a lot of things that I cringe back at looking at it. But there's also the kind of self-compassion i think you have to have there of I yeah you, i'm not I yeah time yeah yeah i mean i'm not like you know flagellating too much and and and, it, and also i'm not saying that like it, it still isn't inspiring to me i'm now like i want to go back and read the first books that i read about franklin mm -hmm. and about uh Amiston and and compare my experiences and while we were up there, there were like a couple of specific places where I was like, wow, we're having the same experience as Captain Cap Parry did when he was shipwrecked here. You know, so it was still important to me. It's not like I've woken up and just like suddenly feel humiliated to like be part of the legacy of the British Empire. The white but guy. like, you know, yeah, it, it's just, I just didn't think that it was appropriate to be like, why do you want to go to the Norfolk Passage? I would have said in 2016, because I want to be like Franklin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't know if that is Black Lives Matter or growing up or um, failing to row the Atlantic and coming up with more intrinsic values, combination of all, probably. Yeah, I think we are channeling aspects of those adventures before, and that's why yeah. doing things that are daring and great are important because they set the example. And you, you like to a degree, you are being like those people that you idolize and that you look up to and the, whose achievements that you respect because that's yeah. like inbuilt into you as a human. Like we will have that like gene ready to turn on almost. Um, yeah. But there's a nuance to it, like you're saying. There was one point where we had this incredibly difficult few hours where this um, ice was all around us and it was like flowing like lava. It was like spilling over itself and colliding and clashing and, we, uh, we were so close to shore, like, you know, within a mile, we just couldn't get there. And it was uh, six, seven hours of this. And we were trying to land on a place called Fury Beach. It's called Fury Beach because in 1825, a guy called Captain Parry and his boat, the Fury, got um, shipwrecked there. And uh, in an attempt to save their boat, beached the boat. And it was all the ice and the wind. The ice was being moved by the wind and the tide. And it was absolutely 
churning their boat. And then um, they left the boat there and they went back on a different boat. And that boat, that beach became famous because all the other subsequent expeditions, if they got shipwrecked, they would try and get to Fury Beach because they knew that there was the boat there with the supplies um, that they could um, survive on until they were rescued. And there's still artifacts there to this day. And uh, West, my teammate in particular, but also me, uh, were very excited about landing in Fury Beach and maybe finding an artifact and being in a place that's so specific and famous to like the, the story of the Northwest Passage. Um, and uh, when we were in this ice and it was pushing us past Fury Beach and it became clear that we were not going to be able to land there, you could see West was a little bit disappointed. Like, oh, I just wanted to land on Fury Beach so much. And I said, well... We are spending six, seven hours trapped in the wind. We were trapped in the tide of the wind and ice. I promise you we're having a more authentic yeah. Captain Parry 1825 experience than uh, you'd ever get by landing there and finding a trinket and taking it home. This is, uh, if you want to feel connected to the stories That's that an experience. you uh, experienced, then we are having probably exactly the same experience. And that was a fascinating day, one that was about a third of the way through um, maybe less, but uh, even at the end, we all sort of said, "What do you remember?" We're like, "Remember the day we defied death in the of Fury Beach? Uh, that's the day that we all look back on, and we're like, that was the best day." You know, I was telling my wife about it. And she said, "Why are you being so negative?" And I was like, "Oh no, I'm not being negative. This is great stuff. We had such a fantastic time, almost dying." Those are the stories that everyone tells. It's the type two fun. Exactly. Like it's, is it? it's yeah, the type only two fun. type of story that people tell on this. Like then yeah. like the the thing that you focus on probably isn't that arrival. It's what other people want to hear about. But the thing that's meaningful to you is the the experience. The probably because you've yeah. got the camaraderie in there, you came together at that point. You were doing something difficult. Yeah. yeah. Like there's it's all there. What's it like leaving for an adventure like that? That moment you kind of kick offshore? What's that like? Uh, well, that was um uh, it was very rushed. We um, so we got um, a lift to the flow edge where the where the ice ends, um, and uh, then those two guys stayed overnight. And then we got up in the morning and we had to pack. And it took us hours to pack because it was like the first time we were rushed, and we didn't want them to wait for another night. And so we it just felt like it was all happening very quickly. And um, and to be honest, it was we rushed. Um, and we got and we started without packing properly, and we got on the other side. We thought that. It was like all this floating ice that was maybe 20 meters offshore. And we thought we'd get on the other side of it, go parallel all the way along the shore, 20 meters offshore with this ice floating around, and then bash our way through it back to land. We're so naive. We're absolutely humbled by the ice that night. It just like, it was sort of angling further and further offshore until we were miles offshore. And we were like, we don't know how far this goes. You know, we could end up trying to go 50 miles around this. So we turned around to go back, but it had shifted. So we couldn't even get back to land. And uh, and we couldn't see land because it was foggy. So we didn't, you know, there was no like point of reference to know, well, if we just keep going for a bit, we'll land. So we were kayaking with a completely unknown end. And um, somebody warned me about this before I went, but I, I couldn't picture it. Um, but and maybe I can't explain it, but perspective becomes completely messed up. You know, we'd come around a corner of ice and we'd say, there are the mountains in the distance we can finally see land. And then we'd realize it was a piece of ice 15 meters away. Um, or, or and that happened so many times. At one point I saw like 10 polar bears standing on ice that we were going straight towards. 
but they're way in the distances. It's like, you know, I wasn't worried. I wasn't even sure if I should bother telling everybody because they were just little, you know, they were specks. Um, I was like, God, there's 10 polar bears there. That's amazing. And then I realized there was 10 seagulls about 10 meters away. It, uh, I can't explain how confusing that is. I've heard the story before. So long looking for reference. No, it's no, it's like um, it's just that because everything is white, and some of the icebergs are enormous, and some of them aren't, and you can't tell which are close and which are far and which are enormous and which are small, and then everything becomes relative to that. And it's and I heard a story before I went about a guy stalking a polar bear and then finding out it was a fox about 20 meters away. And I was like, how do you, I don't understand. But my dad told me a story about him being in Greenland thinking that the, they were going to arrive at the, the base, at base camp in the afternoon and then walking for another five days. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and with the mountains just not getting any bigger. Um, it's so difficult to understand that. I could not understand that whatsoever. And it happened again. I once saw a polar bear eating a seal, and then it turned out to be a seagull eating a fish. Um, and like, it's so confusing. And we just keep coming around corners. And um, then finally, we made it back to the like semi permanent ice rather than shifting ice, the one that's like you can camp on. And we got skidded over. And there was an Inuit um, uh, camp there, and they pulled us up on shore. We were still, still panicked at that point. It was like 2 a.m. in the morning, and we were just being completely schooled. And uh, we were asking them, like, can you do us back to the, um, back to the cabin, um, which is where we were staying? And they said no. And we, and the captain, that there, um, the guy who's leading their um, their camp, just without looking at us, sort of said, "The flow edge is a hard place to be. If you can't handle it, you shouldn't be here." And I was like, "Fair enough." <laughs> I mean, you're right because we've just been absolutely humbled. Which day was that? Um, was that day one? That was literally starting. And then um, we didn't want to go back in the water because we didn't know what the ice was doing. So strapped kayaks around our waist and just towed it over the ice. Um, and we started following these bare footprints because I thought it will know um, what solid ice is. And at one point, the, the um, bare footprints sort of turned left just for 10 meters in a bit of an arc. And I wondered, oh, I wonder why the polar bear turned. <laughs> and that moment, I just cracked straight through the ice into the Arctic Ocean below me. Um, fortunately, I managed to sort of stay with my head above it. I said, asked the other guy, I said, don't come over here. He'll fall in as well. Push the kayak towards me. So they pushed the nose of the kayak towards me. I had onto it and they pulled me out. And then we continued on. And then we got back to the cabin and um, we waited for the ice to change, which took like two weeks. So we just, so we start, sat in this cabin and we, and we start, we tried another like three times, full on packs, pack, go, this is the day, attempt to, um, and uh, we wouldn't get, and this time we wouldn't try and go around the other side of the ice and 50 miles out. So we'd uh, go and we'd sort of explore and they were fantastic trips. Yeah. Like they were in the beautiful, beautiful, like sun, pristine water, no wind. And we we're like in the middle of all this ice. And um, we know we can get back to the cabin now because we're not going to go to the other side of it. Huge icebergs. It was really one of like, you know, it was absolutely fantastic. Something you pay millions of thousands of pounds, like for a kayaking trip like that. Um, so like, I guess you're starting, what's it like starting? Well, the first time we started was rushed and didn't really, it was like, it was so much was going on. It didn't have like a chance to appreciate it. And then we started like another four times and then it became weird because you'd be starting and you're trying to like mentally prepare, but you're also not sure if you're really going to go more than like five miles up the shore and back again. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, um, and I, I can't, I don't know when like the realization was on the sixth time that we started or whatever it was, right. We've gone 10 miles now. We've gone 15 miles, right. We're not turning back. We're not turning back. Um, so yeah, that must it, be it was sort of like exciting. a slow boil. Yeah. yeah. That, that first moment of like, yeah, I'm, we're actually doing this now. We're actually... Yeah. We're not turning around now. Yeah. Okay. What's navigating in that environment like? Uh, so we had like um, Garmin GPSs mm-hmm. and uh, you could put a waypoint in. And uh, to begin with, we didn't really use waypoints. We were just following the shore and using maps. Um, uh, I, I'm, I was the youngest by uh, 20 or 30 years. I think I was a bit better at using the GPS. And then come about 300 miles from halfway, I started pointing out that maybe we could shave off time if we went to this waypoint instead of following the shore and shave off time here. So I think in the last 300 miles into halfway, where we stocked up with food, we may have saved us a, a couple of days by doing that. So from then on, it became like like the standard. We set a waypoint. We is it cut challenging to navigate though because of moving ice? Well, the ice. I mean, you can't. You're not really navigating when you're in the ice because you're just trying to get out of the ice. Okay. Like the the ice is not something we were familiar with. It wasn't always there. Once we were past the ice, like three days after starting, we didn't see it again until that crazy, crazy um, day where it was all around us and moving very dynamically. Um, and Matt, you know, you, you don't have a choice of like following a line. You're just trying to like pick holes. Is it just get out? Follow leads. Yeah, it's get, yeah, get out. We'll get through to the other side and see open water and you're trying to get to it. I imagine um, because your head's pretty low as well, you don't get much difficult. of a perspective as instead, like even compared to standing at around six feet. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, uh, on that day, we did get out on the of the kayaks onto and stood on the ice at one point because it was it was getting insane and two ice flows had like collided and almost crushed Eileen and I. And by a miracle, because the curve of our the bottom of our kayak is round, as it pinched up. us, it slipped. It would, yeah, it just scooped us up, and that was like um, you know that squeaky bum time. Um, uh, and uh, so we all just got out yeah. <laughs> and just stood there. And we were still moving at like three and a half miles an hour standing on this ice because it was just like this melee and we just couldn't see anything. And we just didn't see any open water around us. And we were about 20 minutes later or half an hour later, God, it's difficult to remember how long it, I mean, it could have been hours. I think it was already 20 and a half an hour and um, it began to spread out again. So we like relaunched the kayaks and made like a desperate bid for sure. Um, but uh, I, I found navigating, um, very mentally draining because particularly when you're doing a crossing or when there's fog so it's like um you know eileen staring behind me a little bit left okay we're off the line now a little bit right so it, like interrupts any flow you have with like conversation because you'll be chatting you'll be like yeah 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 okay Mo, a little bit left now no that's too much or you're trying to like get into the flow and just like let your body take over and forget about like uh, it, but it makes you like really aware of the fact that you are kayaking you can't like let your mind drift yeah you can't enjoy this so for me i found it so so mentally draining to be um like navigating and uh when i was utterly utterly depleted towards the end um i think i probably lost my touch a little bit because as i said i was like probably the best navigator for a a while Mm -hmm. and then on the last crossing or maybe the last two crossings Actually, yeah, it was like a 16-mile day where I just went for completely the wrong point and then we had to go side onto the waves. And then on the final 40-mile crossing, 
kept we kept having to creep right to like recorrect correct which is something that just like there were mistakes i wouldn't have made before but I, I just found it like so mentally taxing yeah no i get i get that i haven't obviously navigated in that kind of environment but i've navigated a lot in pitch black without yeah. being able to use lights and well, it's, yeah it's, or anything that like requires mental energy mm-hmm. mental energy is finite like uh if you sprint Mm -hmm. you will eventually have to slow down because your body has only so much physical energy but and if you exercise your mind you eventually slows down because it's it's, it's finite as well and you can build that up through infinite experiences of adventure and stuff but by the end of like almost 100 days out there on the last two crossings i was just finding it you know really really difficult and I, I think I was fine, getting worse at it because I was like, I'm not going to let this ruin it for me. So I was trying to do like juggle both mm-hmm. balls. I was like, I'm going to stay present. Experience. I'm going to enjoy the environment. I'm going to look around, which meant that something had to give, which was the, the navigate. And it wasn't like a big deal. We just had to, you know, I, we weren't lost. Mm-hmm. It was just like correcting a little bit. And on a 40 mile crossing, whenever he's tired, you'd rather just like go in a straight line, appear on the beach and everybody's happy. But uh I was just like, oh, I'm so tired of navigating. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I bet. And so I'm guessing you're eating fewer calories than you need. Like, not mm. you're not packed a thousand a day, but there's probably a yeah. few fewer than you need. An element of sleep deprivation as well. Uh, that, there wasn't an element of okay. that at all. Okay. I mean, there, uh, there was a couple of nights where we had to do an overnighter because we knew that the weather was okay. turning bad, so we wouldn't be able to do thing. But uh, I thought there was going to be more of an element of like. Um, smash and grab for like um there's a weather window we've got to take it even if it's just nine till midnight and then and then there's another one at six so everybody get to bed like get up early Mm -hmm. but um it was a very well rested expedition we really like um uh took our sleep seriously and um there was i was never tired from like a sleep point of view what did you something that what did you learn tactically in that experience like was there anything you'd do differently if you're going to do it again uh, hmm, no, well, no, I think I'd maybe I'd take more wool clothes. So I, um, my, I think I suffered from the cold the least of all. Um, and I, I'm better at dealing with cold than at like, I'd say I'm in like the top percentile of people who deal with cold. I'm jealous. But, uh, I, but I also, I'm, I'm also in probably the bottom percentile of dealing with heat. Like, uh, I, if I, yeah. if, if I was to do the marathon to serve or something, I probably couldn't finish it. But, um, I think part of that was because my clothes are all wool and wool keeps you warm when it's wet mm-hmm. and cotton doesn't keep you warm when it's wet. And most of my clothes are wool and I would have taken all of my clothes as wool. So even I had a, you know, I had like a wool base layer and a wool jumper and then a cotton jumper. I would have taken just all wool. Um, uh, yeah, but I mean, there, there are things that we couldn't have done differently. Um, well, yeah, maybe in the training, I would have concentrated more on like my kayaking technique because those two, those three guys are like ultra kayaking champions. And I was like a rower who joined at the last minute. And in the beginning, I was thinking, I've been incredibly naive here to think that I can keep up with these guys. But it came within a few days and then I, I was fine, I think. But there was always a speed discrepancy between my boat and the other boat. Um so, um, but then equally, me and Eileen were much quicker on land, uh, getting ready and stuff. So I guess there was like no, there's no solution there because um, 
that those guys would have gone faster on water and we would have kayaked for more time because we would have been faster on land. So we both would have been faster, <laughs> but uh, I, it's not, but I don't, it's not, but on the other hand, we benefited well from a safety point of view, having two boats, they carried some of our food cause we needed more food than them, but then we gave them some food at the end. Um, so yeah, I mean, we all benefited from being part of a team, but we all had drawbacks as well. That's just part of, part, part of being a team. So the, the, the problems wouldn't have been solved unless I literally changed the team. So we have people who are the same speed as kayaking and us, but the same speed as get, uh, getting ready on land. Or if they changed the team, so they had faster kayakers, but people who were like the same pace as them were getting ready. Yeah. Did you change up who was in each kayak? Or was it always uh, the same? For, the first night I was with Jeff mm-hmm. on that like night where we were humbled by the ice. And we were much slower than the other boat. So then we swapped um, and we we're still a bit slower, but Eileen was very patient with me. And after a couple of days, we sped up. Um, and then Eileen and I stayed in the boat the whole time okay. together for the rest of the trip. Nice. What uh, team dynamics like over 103 days? Well, there's highs and lows, um, inevitably. Um, but uh, still good. I mean, like, uh, I. I want to do it. <laughs> the camaraderie was so important to me. Mm. Um, and I guess it's like a sort of a physical division of being in two different boats. It's not like ocean rowing where you're all in the same boat. Um, so Eileen and I obviously had much more time together than I had with West or Jeff. And West and Jeff were best friends for 30 years, which adds a different dynamic where Eileen and I just joining at the last minute together, new to it and seeing this whole thing through like our virgin eyes together. Um, so, you know, like, um, there's different things that mean that there's like different, different dynamics, but, uh, um, and I've read that West in a newspaper article recently said that something he didn't anticipate was how difficult he found dynamics with people he didn't know. Cause all of his other expeditions he'd been on with people who he had established relationships with. Um, so I suppose the, the reading, reading that li- literally mm-hmm. <laughs> something that West was dealing with. Um, so, uh, yeah, but I mean, I come out of it and, um, Eileen's already booking like tickets to come to Edinburgh for the Edinburgh festival next year. Um, uh, her and I, I, uh, as I say, those like experiences where you're like, only we went through that together. But I think also being in a boat with somebody like I was with Eileen, like actually the, 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 you, you physically are pulling the boat together and that is like a man that's like a literal manifestation of like what I'm looking for. You know, like every if I was tired and we wanted to go four miles an hour, presumably she was pulling harder on those days. And if she was tired, I was pulling harder. That's like, that's it. Mm, so it was awesome. That's lovely. That's. But there are there are tensions at different points. Yeah, I and I'd say that speed tension was was one that was ever present. I'm sure that those guys were very frustrated. You you would be frustrated if you think you could go four and a half miles an hour and you're going three and a half miles an hour because we can't go. Yeah, fast compounded over a hundred days, that's a huge difference. But then equally, we're getting frustrated because we think we could kayak for twelve hours a day instead of ten hours a day because we can get ready in an hour and a half and not three and a half hours. Yeah, I bet. I bet. How did you did you change whilst you're away? Um. I changed like, I mean, like, I, 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 I mean, during the thing, I, I, what I was experiencing was changing because I, I guess I was getting to know the people better. Um, so like inevitably your interactions change with people, you know, better than when they're complete strangers. 
And um, um, I was definitely so depleted by the end, I had like less, less to give and I was a bit shorter mm. with um, with Eileen sometimes. And But we spoke about how we, you know, we're both so depleted, we can't expect much from each other in terms of like, Man, uh, <laughs> um, but um, and towards the end, I became very outcome focused. In the beginning, when we were stuck for two weeks, um, every night I would go make make a point just after we finished dinner and they're getting ready for bed. I would go out and stand by the shore and just look out at the, at the sea, and I'd see whales and stuff like that. And they would often say, "Oh, you're you're the best whale spotter," and I'm like, "Well, I spend the time doing it." Um, and that was part of me trying to ground myself and say, what I'm here for is immersion in nature and look what's going on around me. I'm getting what I'm looking for already rather than getting frustrated because we hadn't started yet. Yeah. So that like intrinsic value is freeing me from me, like the disappointment of not starting. Mm-hmm. By the end, I was like, we've got to finish. We've got to finish. You know, I was so close to the end. I know I'm here for a camaraderie and I'm here for immersion in nature, but if we fail a hundred miles from the end, then uh, is that what, because of the kind yeah. of the sunk cost if you've done so much, or was it kind of something else like just get me off this ice? Or uh, get me off this water, sorry. A combination, but the sunk cost. Um, it, it, it was, when I was hungry, I remember I wrote in my diary at one point, like, get me off. I will, this is the end. I don't want to be here anymore. I just want to finish. I'm not going to quit, but I just am so over it. And then the next diary entry says, Turns out I was just hungry. I'm actually having a great time. <laughs> um, but um, but then also like you know I, I give talks and um, to corporates and companies and schools and um, I'm hoping that um, business grows now because I've got this profile and this success behind me. And I became acutely aware that the success of that was like hanging on the the outcome of the adventure. You know, sure I could say it would be a great talk that people who hear it would understand and enjoy if I said, but I was there for camaraderie, so we didn't achieve it. So we didn't, um, but what I was looking for, I got, but less people would book me as a speaker if I was now two time world first record holder. Um, and, uh, and I felt a bit sad that that's what I was thinking of, but I was just like thinking so much about Mm. the sacrifices that uh, my wife had made for me to be here being at home with a one-year-old daughter pregnant with another one on the way. Um, she has a, uh, she works very, very, very hard. And uh, it's important to her to like give opportunities that we've had growing up to, um, from our parents to, to our children. And I'm, I'm like, I have to be an equal partner in this relationship. I, I want, I'm so driven to be like the 50% partner, the support from my, um, wife I, I i i want to give the opportunities i i'm here not because i wanted to kayak i'm here it didn't happen in a vacuum i'm here because my parents validated me they came and watched my sports games they told me what i was doing was important and they could afford to give me the opportunities and you know worst case scenario this goes absolutely tits up i can go home i have a bedroom i have a like support network all of these things and now i've had my fun it is time for my daughter and my next child. So with that in mind, I need to get to the end 
to get the most like talks and corporate gigs that I can out of this from a career perspective. So it wasn't as, so in one way it felt like sort of dirty to be thinking about this from a career perspective, but it was more profound than that. I felt like, mm. and I feel like a, um, like that th this is such a wonderful experience that I want my daughter to have the opportunity to experience these things. And ironically, the way, the mean, the way to get that done is sort of, to sully the end of it by becoming outcome focused <laughs> yeah it's funny isn't it like that that balance because I, I speak about this with people that i call entrepreneurs so entrepreneurs yeah i've been I've called in it, their yeah. free time so yeah. I, I talk about that with people like that a lot and it's because the outcome is important too and they're both just as important yet we find ourselves becoming outcome focused too frequently and for hmm. too much of a kind of percentage of our experience so like i think there's you have to personal experience and from working with other people that those outcomes are entirely valid too. And if you want to further your career, that's fantastic because it's going to make your life better in the future. So I don't yeah. think it's an entirely um, negative or spurious way to, to live. Yeah. But um, when we were 89 miles from the end and we had a 40 mile crossing to go, um, we had a weather window on the Tuesday, but it wasn't ideal. So we didn't take it because we thought there was one on the Thursday. And then the weather forecast changed and said, there's no other weather window for, for 10 days. And we had seven days of food and I spiraled. I was like, I'm 89 miles from the end. And we didn't take the Tuesday weather window. Like, you know, what I could, I've just ruined this. And I felt like I could have maybe pushed more. I was so tired. That when it, when we got it when the alarm went up at three and every so oh, it was a bit more windy than we expected i said you're right and went to sleep and i'm like i should have said look guys let's trust the weather forecast we know that the weather's going to come down and i really like put it on myself that i um had like chickened out again uh taken the excuse so oh, the weather's really nice go to sleep and on thursday we'll be fine um and I, I was so and i had a fight with eileen and then she and she both her and i were just like we went to collect water and we just we didn't give each other what we needed. You know, like mm. I said something about how I should have said something and she said something along the lines of like, well, you know, I couldn't say anything because of X, Y, and Z. And I said, well, I'm talking about me, not about you now. <laughs> um, and then the next day when the weather forecast changed again and it turned out we could go on Friday and suddenly the tension had gone, Eileen and I were like, really sorry about yesterday. <laughs> oh yes, yeah, so am I. <laughs> like, you know, that wasn't uh, me. That was completely unkind. Um so uh, that that was my lowest point, and that was because I was I just thought we're not gonna we're not gonna, I cannot believe we've messed this up and it's my fault and it's, it wasn't my fault but it was uh, it's nobody's fault but uh, yeah th th that was a problem with becoming outcome faced uh, but on the other hand I don't know maybe you have to be like that yeah I've achieved something that nobody it's else the kind has of performance achieved. piece again it's like to yeah. do a thing as well yeah. as well as experience a thing. But yeah, I mean, from that point, by that point, I was thinking about it from my like supporting my family like perspective, and I was like, I've completely let down my family because I was too cold to like advocate for pushing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I felt very guilty. Well, yeah, it's so interesting. It's so interesting what you find out about yourself and the decisions you make in those kind of environments. It's really interesting. Yeah. Two more questions that I want to particularly ask you. First one is like, how the hell did you square that with your wife? <laughs> <laughs> to take yeah, the three and a bit months away. Um, well, um, 
as I say, I've been thinking about this since 2016, and to an extent, the Atlantic crossings even became a like stepping stone. You know, it wasn't even like, well, when you rode the Atlantic, we'll get it out of your system. Even before I started, like, when I rode the Atlantic, I'll then be in a position to say, I've rode the Atlantic, let's rode the Northwest Passage. Mm. Um, uh, so it didn't come out of nowhere. And we left Hong Kong in 2021 with the idea of rowing the Northwest Passage and then starting a family after that. But COVID delayed things. And we weren't in a position to delay having a family. It would have been ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, we always knew that this was coming. Um, and uh, my wife, so it, that's one aspect of it. But the other aspect is that my wife is just a great, great person <laughs> who's incredibly supportive um, and has every right to hold this over my head for the rest of her life. But like, you know, it's, it's done now, you know, um, and also beyond that, like the support network who were my friends and her family and my family who say they, they who say and mean and do say, I, I can come and help if you need to go, if you want to go out for drinks with the girls, we will come and watch your daughter for the night mm-hmm. or my in-laws come down once a month each, um, the mum and Sophie's mum and Sophie's dad and babysit on Fridays. And there's all, all these sort of things, which mean that, it was uh, an absolute village who who helped me, but at the centre of that village is Sophie. Who, um, yeah, the BBC called her a hero when they interviewed me. But I thought they were calling me a hero, so I tried to like model- modestly scoff. <laughs> right, not a hero. <laughs> then I realised what they were saying, <laughs> and I was like, it looked like I got she's no hero. <laughs> I was like, no, no, I mean she is a Let's let's not get carried away. She didn't care at all. <laughs> Oh well, first, well, well, well. yeah, but uh, but uh, she's um, yeah, she's a trooper. So yeah, it's credit with her because she's incredible, and because this had been in the pipeline for a very, very, very long time. And then the final thing you mentioned your dad a couple of times. What kind of example was was he growing up? Yeah, so uh, my dad was a proper explorer. He mapped up Greenland, mapped up Patagonia, first person to walk north to south of the Patagonia ice cap. Wow. Um, these these kind of things, which shows how old he is that there was like actual areas that need mapping. Um, and um, by osmosis, I got into the outdoors because he was in the outdoors. We'd go hiking on a Sunday and we'd come back and have pancakes or our holidays were like camping trips and uh, and that kind of stuff. But um, in terms of these kind of adventures, my, my one, I guess, having a parallel to his, for his ones, like, we knew about them. I guess as kids, we were all most interested in the Everest one because you know what Everest is. Um, but it wasn't like dad telling yarns at the table or anything like that. It, it wasn't like, uh, like an, I was into rugby and my dad would come and watch rugby. He wouldn't, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't like a massive part. But my mum, also legitimately an adventurer, I moved to Australia in her 20s. And then spent four years like traveling overland back to the UK, which a woman in her twenties, like going through Afghanistan in the nineteen seventies. and she tells stories. She's where all me and my siblings get our like storytelling from. And we'd always say, Well, what are you gonna tell your grandkids? What are you gonna tell your grandkids? Mm. Oh yeah, oh, oh yeah, he's got a great career, but is he gonna have stories for his grandkids? And uh, yeah, I always thought about making that like the title of my book. It's definitely gonna be one of the chapter titles because like my mum made such a point of it, um, mm. uh, you know, sending us off like, you're going to go do something interesting this summer because you need stories to track it. 
which I've now got this like pathological desire to like, I need stories for the grandkids. What, what am I doing relaxing on a Sunday? I can't tell my grandkids about this. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's, I guess like it was more my mum that was sort of like an overt inspiration. But now that I'm older and I'm doing these things and I, I definitely can relate to my dad and we have great conversations about it in, in, in a different way, which, um, you know, he, he knows, you know, even as simple as knowing that even though I explained the perspective thing about seeing polar bears and turning out to be seagulls, they, um, it's difficult for anybody who hasn't seen it to picture, but I know my dad can picture it, mm. you know, so there's like an aspect of, um, being able to relate to each other, which is, is fantastic. Nice, man. I think that's a lovely place to, to wrap up. Where can people follow your work? Um, when's the book coming out? Give a, give us a plug. Uh, well, I've got, um, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Adventure Agnew. Um, and also on LinkedIn, Mark Agnew. I do a lot on there. Um, and the book, um, I've got a few publishers interested. Um, and we're talking in the moment. So nothing's concrete um, about when the book will come out or what it will look like. But I've got another book as well called Stay Ventures, which is about big, big expeditions. But in the UK, nice. I'm trying to make the point that it doesn't have to be micro and domestic or big and abroad. You can do big and domestic. Um, you know, if you kayak the whole way around the British mainland, you're actually kayaking further than the entire Northwest Passage. Hmm. Nice. Or so swim it like you... Ross Edgley did, which is insane. Exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, I've been trying to make the point that it's about imagination as well. Like lands into John O'Groats. I've interviewed somebody who's run it, walked it, cycled it and rode a horse. <laughs> <laughs> like it, 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 you can, you can do whatever you want in the UK as long as you have where for all so those two things are in the pipeline but we'll um, we'll see as to when when they come out fantastic dude uh, thank you so much for your time great thank you very much for having me